Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. Okay, we're going back to Romans. We had a month break. I'm on six weeks in a row now, and uh, we're going to just push through to the end. I've got a roadmap. I've got a roadmap. I'm going to follow it, and there's so much good stuff uh, the next few weeks. Just the, Romans has so many treasures. The big picture, the small picture, uh, how we live, how we think, how we feel, and all of that is in here. And so today we're going to finish the second half of, of uh, Romans chapter 8. And it's interesting, I'm, I'm always fascinated with the sovereignty of God and how he often will work things together coincidentally. Um, it's really interesting. So last week, Pastor Ray preached an awesome message on the Holy Spirit. And uh, now this week, as we go back to our Romans series, the second half of Romans really actually is about the Holy Spirit, walks you through uh, four roles that the Holy Spirit plays in our life. And that's what we're going to talk about today. There's other things he does as well. These are not the only four things he does, but in Romans 8, which is a spectacular chapter, absolutely, you know, one of the climaxes, pinnacles, one of the most amazing uh, chapters in, in the entire Bible, I think. But uh, in this, he, he, Paul really traces out four things that the Holy Spirit does in our life, and I think they're awesome. So I'm just going to read you a chunk here, and then uh, we'll pray and we'll get into this. Uh, Romans 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. And we'll just skip a few verses uh, there to 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray, and then we'll get into this. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for sending your Holy Spirit to us. And I pray this morning, some of these truths, well, all of these truths are old. Many of these truths we've heard before, and yet they are fresh. They need to be fresh to us every day and every week. And I pray that you would minister to us again a fresh Holy Spirit. I pray you would touch us again, that, we would have, that, we, that you would build up our faith to walk with you in a closer way, in a more conscious way, to pursue you and listen to your voice in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So four roles of the Holy Spirit in your life. And again, these are not the only four things he does. He does other things as well. But we're just looking at the second half of Romans 8 here. And the first one is, is he, and this is an obvious one we've talked about many times before, but again, to look at these things afresh, he is the one who empowers you and I to kill the bad character, bad habits, bad ways of thinking and speaking that are in our lives. Romans 8, 12 to 13 there again says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is only by the Spirit's power, only by the Spirit's power, that you and I can overcome the, the, the junk in our lives, the woundedness, 
The bad ways of thinking, the bad ways of talking, especially the bad ways of thinking. I mean, the bad ways of thinking are ultimately the roots of where all the bad behavior and the bad talking comes from. And it's only by the Holy Spirit. Any of you who has ever tried under your own power, and I'm sure we've all done it, who has tried under your own power to change the way you think, to change the way you react, to change the way you talk, know how impossible that actually is. I mean, we just get in a rut. We have this woundedness. We have these strongholds. And it just starts from when we're young. And by the time, you know, you get into your 20s and 30s and on, it's so set that it's just, it's, it's basically impossible. You can make little cosmetic changes, perhaps. But to actually change from a cranky, greedy, miserable, lustful person to a generous, kind, loving person actually requires a power beyond ourselves. And so obviously God knows that and uh, inspiring Paul here, he knows that we cannot change on, your, on our own. And so he says now it, that we have to do it by the Spirit. By the Spirit, these things can be overcome. Okay? By the Spirit. Now, of course, I know what some of you are thinking. You're sitting there and you're going, like I've been a Christian for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And, I, none of, and these things haven't changed in me yet. I've, I, so you're saying by the Spirit we can put to death the deeds of the, of the, the flesh but I've been a Christian for however long it's been, and I haven't been able to do that. He hasn't killed my crankiness. He hasn't killed my addiction. He hasn't filled me with joy and gratitude, all right? And so let me just say a couple of things about that. First of all, the Holy Spirit won't kill anything in you without your permission and cooperation. He's just gentle. And, uh, and that's not a rebuke to you. It's, uh, again, if we use, often throughout this series, I've used the example of, of cancer because I think it just affords us some parallels with what happens in us in the flesh. But a person who has cancer, you go to the doctor and, the, and, the do- and of course, you don't have power on your own again. We've talked about this. You don't have power on your own to reach your fingers into your own body and kill the cancer. So you're completely powerless. On your own, you know, the doctor gives you a diagnosis of cancer. You, on your own, can't do anything about it. You can't touch it. You can't improve it. You can't do anything to it, okay? But the doctor might say, for certain kinds of cancer, you might say, we can do chemo on this, on this type of cancer, and we can have a lot of success, okay? Now, he's not going to hold you down, though. Here's the thing. The doctor's not going to hold you down and put a gun to your head and say, no, take this chemo, Right? You have to be a willing participant. You have to show up to all your appointments. You actually have to climb up onto the table and you have to let him do his work. And it's the exact same thing with the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's the exact same thing with the Holy Spirit. You have no power. You have zero power. It is impossible for you. In some ways, that's a releasing truth. It's impossible for you and for me to change ourselves in any way. Impossible. We can't reach our fingers into ourselves and change the sin nature that has infected us. Okay? But the Holy Spirit can do it. But in order for Him to do His work, it's not just a one-time snap-your-fingers thing. You have to show up again and again and again. And you have to climb up onto the table, otherwise known in the Bible as the altar. You climb up onto the altar and you die again and you have to let Him do His work in you. And that's why this passage, I actually love what this verse says. It doesn't just say, by the Spirit. It says, if by the Spirit. Look at the rest of this verse here. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so, I mean, if you just read that verse, it's like, well, who's killing the flesh? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it me? And the answer is yes. That's the answer. 
It is the Holy Spirit. You don't, have any, you don't have any power to do it on your own. But he wants you to pull the trigger. He gives you the gun. He loads it. He puts the bullet in there. And he says, now I want you to kill your flesh. He wants you to pull the trigger. If by the Spirit, it has to be by the Spirit, but there's still this element of you when it comes to being set free, when it comes to walking in freedom, if by the Spirit, you still have to participate in this thing of putting to death the deeds of your flesh. And so that's, there's going to be struggle. We've talked about that a whole bunch of times already in this series. There is going to be struggle. The Holy Spirit wants you to get your hands dirty with him. This is not you sitting back and watching him. But then if you will get your hands dirty, if you will struggle, there will be times when you're exhausted. You'll have to, you know, you'll be praying and he'll show you things and you'll have to confession and, and accountability and personal ministry. And there'll be things in, in spending time in the word and, and these various things. He's going to ask you to push and he's going to ask you to subtract some things from your life, all this sort of stuff. But if you do those things and get your hands dirty, if you climb up on the altar again and again and again, then he will do the work in you and he will destroy what's impossible for you to change. And I think there's two really good things we can take out of that uh, when, as we struggle. And f- the first one is, is that you and I can struggle with faith. We can struggle with faith knowing that it's not our power but his power. So oftentimes it's hard to have faith when we struggle against strongholds, when we struggle against bad habits, bad patterns of thinking, and, and we just really come to grips with our own weakness. It can be hard to have faith. It starts to seem like I will never change. It's impossible for me to become the person I want to become. But when you know that it's the Holy Spirit's power, you can, you can have faith as you struggle, knowing that, yes, it is impossible for you, but with him, nothing is impossible. I can struggle with faith, knowing that he will set me free, and he will touch me. He will work in my life. And the second thing is not only can you struggle with faith, you can struggle restfully. And you say, first of all, we here at Southland are known in this community already for making up words. I heard this from a, a school teacher. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure that's probably not exactly, and plus it looks like a contradiction. What do you mean struggle restfully? What I mean struggle restfully is this. Struggling restfully means that when you understand fully that it is only by the Spirit you're able to put to death the deeds of your flesh, then at a certain point, You do the things that God's calling you to do and you're still not changed and what it means is you put your head on the pillow and you realize, you say to God, I did my best. And you you don't run around with like a chicken with your head cut off thinking, what more, what more, what more do I need to do? What more do I need to do? There just comes a point when actually you realize it has to be God. I'm doing everything he's called me to. I'm seeking him with a good heart and now in his time, he has to release me and you don't carry that burden you know that burden you sometimes carry where it's like you just keep beating yourself up and beating yourself up and beating yourself up and beating yourself up. It's not that you stop struggling, but you struggle restfully. You struggle knowing that you can't do it. And since he hasn't taken it off you yet, you just have to keep waiting. You just keep confessing and you go to sleep at night and you realize Lord Jesus is going to have to be in your timing. You struggle with faith and you struggle restfully. That's rule number one, the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's him who kills the flesh, right? It's him who has to help us and empower us to do that. Well, second rule of the Holy Spirit in our life is to bear witness with our spirits that we are children of God. I love this passage, starting in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are servants of God. No. Are friends of God. No. Are employees of God. No. All who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You've actually received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We call him Father because we've received the spirit of adoption. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is an absolutely stunning truth. It's absolutely stunning. Are we servants of God? Yes. We're called that many times in Scripture as well. Are we friends of God? Yes, we're also called that in Scripture. Are we even called at times, the apostles sometimes call themselves bond slaves of God? Yes, all of these things are true, but there's a reality that encompasses all of them, and that is when you give your life to Jesus, he gives you the spirit of adoption, and we actually become God's children. Now, it's such a cliche, we're God's kids, that for many of us, it ceases to impact the heart, but if we ever stop to think about what that means, the privilege, the awesomeness to be a child of God. The only way I know to relate to it is to think about my own kids. And uh, I've got four of them, and I love them all dearly. And, uh, but I, my, my youngest now, Boaz, he's two and a half years old. And uh, he comes to me the other day. I'm lying on the floor, probably trying to read or do something adult-like for once in my life. And uh, he comes to me, and he's got a big muss of curly uh, blonde hair and sparkling blue eyes, and, and, and of course at that age, one of the things that's so cute about them is their arms and legs are all out of proportion, so when he puts his hands you know, straight up, he touches the top of his head, and, uh, and uh, can you imagine if us adults were like that, how big our heads would have to be, but uh, um, huge, huge heads, it's an orange on a toothpick, but anyway, um, so uh, I don't know why I said that, but... Uh, <laughs> But anyway, Boaz comes over to me, and he's got the big head and the muscle hair and the sparkly blue eyes and the stubby legs and arms and a shirt that says, mischief is my business and business is good. And I'm lying there trying to do something adult-like for once in my life. And, and, he, and he bends over, and he kind of cocks his head, and he says, Daddy pay dinky cars? Now, dinky cars are not high on my list of things to do, okay? On my day off... This is not one of the things, you know, in the top two or three or four or five or ten or a hundred things that I want to do is go and play dinky cars. If one of you called me and asked me to play dinky cars, I would phone a police hotline, right? This is not, I'm not into this, okay? But Boaz, two and a half years old with his must up hair and that wild look in his eyes and his mischief is my business shirt on, he looks at me and he says, pay dinky car, and there's something that happens inside of me, it's like a magnet. I feel myself saying, no, you're getting sucked in, and you just find yourself getting up off the floor and going over with him and playing dinky cars. Now, why is that? What is it about Boaz that has that kind of an impact, an effect on my heart? Another story, my two middle kids, Charlie and, and Eden, the other day, um, they're like, uh, uh, Daddy, you want to play Uno with us in a fort downstairs? Now, again, uh, Uno is not a great game. There's no strategy in it whatsoever. Okay? Okay? And then I'm thinking, Uno in your fort, right? Okay, so I'm six foot two around there, and I'm going to bend and puzzle myself into this ill-conceived, planned, and built fort. And I'm going to sit in there, I'm going to try and play Uno. So I'm like, well, kids, why don't we try to play this other game on the table? No, 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 Dad. Uno in a fort. Okay. So I walk downstairs. They've set this thing up in the laundry room. Now our laundry room has about, you know, this much usable space. 
okay? And they have, they have piled a couple of blankets in between the water softener, the furnace, the hot water tank, the washing machine, and three uh, baskets of, of dirty laundry with my sweaty running clothes uh, hanging above, okay? And I open the door to this, and they're in there with the biggest grins you've ever seen on your face. And in that moment, again, do I want to play Uno in, this, in, in, in a laundry room like this? Absolutely not, okay? But in that moment, I open that door, they got these big crazy grins, and Charlie's like, is this not the most awesome thing? But in that moment, he says that he's got me. And the next thing you know, I'm on, the, I'm on the floor in the laundry room, and we're playing Uno, and we have an absolute blast, and, it just, and I just, it's, it's wonderful. I'm so happy. I just enjoy my time. What is it about our kids that does that to us, right? What is it about our kids? And who taught me? Who taught me to feel that way? Did I have to go to a class? Did I have to go to a six-week class? How to feel love for your kids. How to be drawn like a magnet to want your kids to be happy, to want to enjoy time with your kids, to do crazy things with your kids. Did I have to be taught that in a course? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I was born with it, and the moment they popped out, I mean, they didn't really pop out, I guess, but they came out. <laughs> That's a whole other story, right? But... But from the moment they came into this world, it's been this journey of just being drawn. It's just a love. Now, where did I get that love? Secular scientists would say, well, you know, chimpanzees had this thing and natural process and evolution. And really, natural, unguided processes can explain love, not a chance. To me, the existence of what we feel for our kids is another proof that evolution cannot be true. So I'm, I'm drawn like a magnet. I have love. I want them to be happy. I want to do good things for them. I want to take care of them. Why do I have that feeling? I'll tell you why. We are, I'm experiencing, each of us as parents, or those of you who know people, or, you, or you, know, you have nephews or nieces, whoever, when we see these kids that we love so much, what we are experiencing is just a little taste. It's a muddy reflection of a much bigger reality that's out there somewhere, and that is God's love. And if God didn't give us kids... We have no reference point for understanding how much he loves us. With no reference point. It would be like a blind person who's been born blind trying to explain sight. You wouldn't know it. So we would read in the Bible and God would say, you're my kids and I love you. And we'd go, cool. But when we look at our kids or people we know who have kids and our families and all this sort of stuff, and that feeling we have for our kids is just a muddy reflection, and it's tainted by sin, it's tainted by woundedness, it's tainted by all kinds of things, it's warped. But it's still there, this overpowering magnetic love that says, I love to be around you, I want to be around you, I want you to be happy, I want to be happy with you. That is just a little reflection of what God feels for us. You give your life to Christ and you have now become his son or his daughter. That is a powerful thing. It's not just that he loves you. It's that he has affection for you. You can approach him with confidence. You can approach him with confidence. Look at verse 15 there again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. Think about this. You gave your life to Christ, and you got a spirit. You got the Holy Spirit in your heart. And it's not the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear 
But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The same way I feel towards my kids, multiply that by a million. Take out the sin and the woundedness, and then multiply it again by billions and trillions. That's actually how God feels towards you unrelentingly all the time. He's not always mad at you. He's not distant from you. He loves when you ask him things. He loves when you want to do things with him. The same way I love my kids. He absolutely loves you. Now, you know, my kids are confident when they approach me. When I come home, you know, after a day here at church, they love to run up to me. They give me hugs. They give me little punches. They love to tell me jokes. They want to wrestle with me. They want to talk to me. That's all because they have confidence when they come to me, okay? Now, that doesn't rule out respect, The fear of the Lord is still really, really important. And my kids would never dare to call me by my first name. They'll yell at me or do those sorts of things, and that's important because they respect me. But the fact that they respect me, that's the whole fear of the Lord side, extremely important. But that whole fear of the Lord side is not talking about being afraid or not being confident. My kids are incredibly confident to come to me, to grab onto my legs, to hold onto me, to hug me, and to know that I want to do things with them. I want to answer their requests. I want to have fun with them. We can approach the Father with that same confidence because we have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but a spirit of adoption by which we call the Father, Father. Every bit, that same picture of me with my kids, that picture, but even way better, is you and me when we go to God. Every day, he's never tired. He's never sick of hearing from you. He doesn't think anything you say to him is stupid. He doesn't think any of your feelings are bad. He wants to hear everything that's on your heart and spend time with you and enjoy you. The problem is many of us here today, maybe most of us, I don't know, but a lot of us, do not have this kind of confidence when it comes to approaching God. Okay? We know objectively on the left side of our brains Because we've been told it all of our Christian lives that God loves you. So we know it as a fact, as a fact that you could put on a test. Does God love you? Every Christian says, yes, it's in the Bible. But where it actually matters is to get it onto the right side of my brain, into the part where I feel and where I actually live out of. It's not just a fact on a test, God loves me, but something I feel, I feel trust for him, I feel confidence to approach him, I love to be around him. That's what we need, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. I can tell you as a preacher, I can tell you the objective fact that God loves you. You can read the objective fact on the pages of the Word of God that God loves you, but only the Holy Spirit can take that objective fact and take it into the deepest parts of who you are so it changes the way you feel and think and believe. Verse 16, the Spirit himself, right? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. Only the Spirit can take things to the deep places of your spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, that we're actually his kids. That the picture of how my kids feel towards me is similar and, and, and not even as good as how we could feel about ourselves as children to God. But we need the Holy Spirit to do this for us, and that's why the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians. He prayed this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. You can't get to this just by knowing objective facts. 
but that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, to know it. There's knowing and then there's knowing that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul knew it's not enough for me to just tell you about God's love. He needed to pray because the Spirit needs to do that work in us. We need to ask the Spirit to do that, and we, then we need to let the Holy Spirit do that. We actually have to let the Holy Spirit do His work. You say, how do I let the Holy Spirit do His work here? Well, there's no formula for this. There's a hundred different things. There's many different ways that we allow our hearts to open up and, and to let the Holy Spirit take His love from an objective fact to something that's deep inside my heart that I live and believe. But just a couple of thoughts that I thought I would pass on to you today. Just a couple of very practical thoughts. First of all is get around people, other people who are full of God's love. Get in a cell group, especially get in a cell group where the leaders and the people in that cell group know how to receive God's love for themselves. Because I'll tell you what happens. You know what? Often the Spirit wants to communicate God's love deep into our hearts, but for many of us, we're so full of condemnation. We're so full of, like, we just actually don't really believe that God wants to love us that way for many different reasons. We're performance-oriented. We're wounded. We have many lies. There's all this stuff. And I know I've been there in my life. I'm still there in many ways, right? So in many cases, I can't actually hear God's love because the Holy Spirit wants to speak to me as love while I read his word, while I listen to him in prayer and journal. But he can't because I actually won't let myself believe anything that, that, unless it's, like, condemning me. And what you need to do is you need to get around people and pray with people regularly and, and look and study the word and, and listen to Jesus and, and pray with people who actually hear God's, actually feel and believe in God's love themselves because they're, they will give you the language. This has happened to me. And you're with other people who feel loved by God and as they pray and believe that he's loving you and that he's loving them, their language of being able to be loved by God begins to spill over into you. And it actually starts to break down some of the inhibitions and some of the things where, you know, God might have put a thought there, put a feeling in your heart, and you just rejected it. That can't be God, because God could only be upset with me for the stuff I'm doing. But as you are around people who are able to receive God's love, it begins to change you and allow you to receive it and give yourself permission for that. And the second thing is, I would tell you, is to stop treating your devotional time as purely a task. So many people treat their devotional time as purely a task, and however they do that, it's amazing how we take the good gifts of God and then we turn them into, into a, a death, into a legalistic death. And so some people, they're like, well, I do my devotions every day. I got to get through my five or six chapters on my reading plan. I just pound through it, close it up, say a prayer for my lost family members, and then I'm, I'm off to work. And, it, and it's just death. They're just check, checking off boxes. Now, I should say this. I mean, even if you eat your veggies at supper time and you hate them, it's still better to eat them than not. Okay, so some people, some people go, you know what, I used to do my devos and it was death, so I don't do them anymore. Well, okay, I, I didn't like my veggies, so I stopped eating them. That would be stupid, okay? The better thing is not to quit doing your devos. The better thing is to change the way you do your time with the Lord. It's supposed to be relational. It's not just a bunch of boxes you check. The Holy Spirit, it's a spirit of adoption. It's a family. You don't treat your family time like that, I hope. You don't treat your wife like that, I hope, right? You have your little checkbox, you pull it in your pocket. Have I said, I love you? Yeah, love you. Uh, uh, flowers. Oh, I'll be right back, honey. Uh, 
Oh, foot rub, foot rub. Okay, here, 30-second foot rub. Done. Check the boxes. Oh, my goodness. You would never do that. No, 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 no. Your, your time of devotion is a time to be quiet, not to be busy. Your time of devotion is a time to be quiet, not a time to be busy. Now, I'll just tell you, now, there's many ways to do this. My way is not the only right way. There's a thousand right ways to do quiet time with the Lord. But I'll just share with you mine, because sometimes it just helps to know what is someone else doing. I've got a whole bunch of bookmarks. You can see them in here. I've got four. A little piece of paper in here. I read, and I got this idea from someone else. I didn't get it from, from myself. But, um, so I read from the Bible four places, but not all four places in, in one day, but throughout the week. So I have four bookmarks in my Bible. I always have a bookmark in the Old Testament. I always have a bookmark in the Psalms and Proverbs. I always have a bookmark in the Gospels. And then I always have a bookmark in the rest of the New Testament. And again, I don't read through all four. I, you know what? Uh, I, I never read more than maybe two chapters in a day, maybe every once in a while. But often it's just one. Sometimes it's only half a chapter. Um, but what I do is I make sure I'm getting through all four places every week. I used to avoid the Psalms like crazy. I make sure I'm in the Psalms now a couple of times a week because... The Psalms is not about learning, they're about feeling. So I want to feel with God. I want to, I want to worship Him. I want to think about Him. I want to have time to be grateful. And I want to make sure I'm getting, I want to, in different places in the Bible, so I'm not just getting one thing, but I don't have to be in all those places every day. And then I just spend time with Him. And you journal out your thoughts, and you read a passage of Scripture, and you meditate on it, you don't just fly through it. And you spend time with the Lord, and as you do that over time, that's when the Holy Spirit can begin to do His work, to actually open up your heart to receive the real love He has, and you begin to feel yourself over time actually trusting Him and knowing that He's your, your Father, that He loves you. Well, there's one more thing I want you to notice here in verse 17 before we move on. There at the end of verse 17, uh, oh, we're in Ephesians 3 here, so you can go to that. Thanks, Sarah. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, why did he have to put this part in there? It was so good. Holy Spirit loves you. He helps you overcome bondages. And he does all this amazing stuff, provided we suffer with him. Oh, come on. In order that we may also be glorified. This is very important. The fact that we are God's kids does not mean he absolutely adores you. The way I adore my kids, those stories I share with you of my kids, I hope that gives you a little bit of a picture of how you can approach God because he loves you that much and far more. But the fact that God is your father, he, you can be confident, he enjoys you, he wants to be with you, but it does not mean that he will shield you from all suffering. He will not. In fact, it says here that suffering is necessary in order to be glorified. It's actually, you actually have to suffer with Jesus in order to be glorified with him, it's not optional. Now that raises two questions for me. First of all, why is suffering necessary in order to be glorified? And secondly, what does it mean to be glorified? Well, if we hop down just a few verses and stay in the same chapter eight here, just uh, uh, nine verses, I just have to count on the fly here. If we just go, whatever, 12 verses down, sorry, 12 verses down to verse 29, it's going to give us some clues. Verse 29, for those whom he, that's God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also call, whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so 
uh, what we see in this very important passage here is that God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. Now, I have to stop and we have to unpack that for a moment because most people in the West here, when we talk about God having a plan for our lives, we have a certain concept of what that means. So when we think of God having a plan for our lives, what we, th- what we think of is God has a plan for where I'm going to work, and God has a plan for where I'm going to live, and God has a plan for who I'm going to be married, and it's all these things are the things that I'm going to do in my life, what I'm going to do for him and my ministry, all sort of stuff. Now, I'm not throwing that. Obviously, he's all-knowing and he's sovereign. And so he, those things are all going to fit into his plan, absolutely, okay? Absolutely, he knows and has plans for all of those things. But I, w- I want you to understand something, is that in the Bible, it never talks about God. So yes, he's sovereign, he's all-knowing, he does have a plan for those things. Again, don't hear me saying he doesn't. But, in the Bible, we don't find passages that talk about God has a plan for your life exactly where you're going to work. Okay? It, it's actually, it is actually true, he's sovereign and he's all-knowing. So it's actually true, but the Bible doesn't talk about that. The Bible doesn't talk about God has a plan for who you're going to marry. Again, I believe he does. But the Bible doesn't talk about that. When the Bible talks about God having a plan for your life, it talks about one thing. And this is the thing we actually don't think of when we think of God having a plan for life. When we think of God having a plan for life, we think he has a plan for what I'm going to do. And where I'm going to live and all these things, because those are the things that are most important to us. But if you want to know what's most important to God, we find it here and other places in Scripture. If you want to really know what is God's plan for your life, it's less about doing than it is what he wants to make you become. Here's his plan for your life. It's right here. In fact, it's such an important plan that he actually uses a word for it that he doesn't attach to any other plan for your life It's the word predestined up there. He has predestined you, which means he is so committed to this plan, he's not going to fail. He's going to do whatever it takes to make this plan come true in your life. And this is what the plan is, to make you conform to the image of Jesus. That's what God wants for you on this earth. That is the big plan. He wants to take you from where you are as a miserable, self-centered, lustful, greedy, whatever, you just put the thing in there, lazy, gossipy, whatever, woman or man, and he wants to take you from wherever you are in your woundedness and your selfishness and your self-centeredness, and he's going to do whatever it takes to conform you into the image of Jesus, to give form in you the character and the heart of Jesus, to make you kind and generous and strong, and wise, and courageous, and integrity, and humble, and meek, and godly. He wants to form in you, he wants to make you like Jesus, not in terms of being a god, not some new age thing, but in terms of your character, and in terms of your heart. He's committed to making you a masterpiece. And then if we look at the word glorified, if we go back to verse 17, here's a little bit of what I believe. And I don't know if I have the whole thing all right. But I think one piece, when he talks about provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, what I believe is that essentially, in essence, kind of what God is doing is at the end of time, he wants to parade us. He wants to parade us in front of the whole world 
the unseen and the seen world. He wants to parade us in front of the angels and the demons and the principalities and all the people of the earth, great and small, and he wants to brag about his work for his glory. And he wants to say, look at, you know, Susie or Janie or whatever over there. She used to be this, self-centered, self-righteous, self-whatever. He says, look at her now, meek, humble, patient, kind, good. And look at, you know, Johnny over there, Billy or whatever. Look, look at them over there, and they used to be greedy and lustful and impatient and no integrity. And look at them now, strong, persevering, humble, kind. See, at the end of your, think about this, think about this. At the end of your life, let's say you've done, externally, you've done great deeds for God but you haven't been Christ-like. You haven't become Christ-like. So you've led some huge ministry. You've done some massive thing, whatever. But at the end of your life, you haven't become Christ-like. Do you, do you think Jesus will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? No. Matthew 7 tells us he, he won't. 721, he, there will be people who did, you know, on a human, from our perspective, did great deeds. But he says, I never knew you. See, because his plan, yes, and he does have ministry for us to do. Uh, absolutely, because it's in the ministry often where he's forming us. But think about this. Think about all the uh, millions and millions of Christians who have lived throughout history who never got an opportunity to do anything great for God. See, in our culture, often we're, we're so worried about, I've got to do something great. And, that, and again, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with wanting to do things. And if you love Jesus, you're going to want to serve him. But I'm just saying, sometimes we get worried about that. We're worried so much about the doing that we forget. Because, and then it's like, well, I've been, it's like God's put me on a shelf. And he hasn't used me. And I'm disappointed now because he hasn't used me to the level I think I should have been used. And, and so we almost get depressed. And what does God want me to do next? And what we don't realize is his plan is moving forward. His plan is to make you like Jesus. That's success. Amen. His plan is to make you like Jesus. And this requires suffering. You don't get refined without fire. You don't get molded without pressure. One of the scariest verses, I think, one of the most mysterious and deep passages. I don't even want to, I don't even want to think about it too long, but it's just, it's, just, it's just mysterious and scary to me is this, that even Jesus had to learn obedience from suffering. Hebrews 5, 7 to 8, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, Jesus wasn't sinful. He was perfect. He was sinless. So it's not like he was, had to suffer in order to get rid of bad traits like we do. But even in his sinless perfection, even in the fact that he was all God and all man, there was something about suffering for his character and his glorification, all that sort of stuff. And I don't want to speculate too far on how that all works. But there was still something suffering, necessary about suffering. Now, here's, here's the point. If Jesus, if, it, if Jesus required suffering in order to grow like this, how much more, you and me, how much more? If the end goal is not just how much stuff are you going to do for Jesus, even though you will do stuff for Jesus if you love him. Absolutely you will. And it's in the doing often that he's creating the being in you. It's not like you can separate the two. I'm just highlighting something. But he wants to make you like Jesus. That is the goal. Which is why even if, you know, people are worried, what am I going to accomplish for Jesus? Let him worry about that. You become Christ-like right where you're at. See, this is the thing. Young people, it's like, 
What does God want me to do? What does he want me to do? Am I in the right job? Am I in the right place? Am I doing the right ministry? Blah, blah, blah. You know what? Actually, you can just calm down. You can just calm down. Here's the thing. Wherever you are right now, McDonald's or the gas station, go and be Christ-like in that place. Go and work your hardest in that job that you hate. Go and be a witness in that place. Be it joyful, be kind, be good in the place where you are right now. And think of the many millions of Christians who have lived throughout history who never got a chance to do something great. Some who grew up in third world countries over the last couple thousand years and maybe never even left the village where they were born. They never did anything great in a sense of, a, of, of you know, what we would call greatness. They maybe grew up in slavery and died in slavery. In various times throughout history, they never did anything great for God, but the, he will call them great on the day of judgment because they were faithful and good and loving and forgiving in that place where they were, where they, they fulfilled the plan he had for them, which was to become like Jesus. And that's success. And then if God wants to give you a big ministry, I'll, can I just tell you something? You can't miss it if you have a good heart. If you're trying to Jonah him, maybe. And you might get swallowed by a whale on the way, not good. But if you just have a good heart and you desire to do your best for Jesus, you cannot miss your calling. It's impossible. Joseph, could he miss it? No. Moses, could he miss it? God will find you in a pit. He'll find you in a jail. He'll find you in a wilderness. He'll find you in a cave. And he will make you what he wants you to be. You don't have to worry about the doing if you'll just let his spirit work in you to become like Jesus. That's success. And that means that pressure is good. Working in a job where there's pressure, where there's stress, I'm not saying that means that it's God's will for you, but it certainly doesn't mean that it's not God's will for you because it's often in the place of confusion. It's in the place of stress. It's in the place of pressure. Pressure is actually good for us. Pressure is actually good for us. Suffering is actually good for us because he's making us like Jesus, and that is the goal for your life. Rule number four. Rule number four. The Holy Spirit, I love this one, he prays for us. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What an incredible promise this is. Every single one of us here, if you've given your life to Jesus, has a prayer partner. And not just any prayer partner, the prayer partner. He never, he never sleeps. He never gets tired. He's got the power of the universe at his fingertips. He knows your deepest desires. He knows every, he knows every intricacy and need in your life. He knows needs you have before you know that you need them. He knows everything about you, and he knows the deep things of God. And he is God. And he prays for you all the time. He prays for you all the time. You know, I have prayer partners here at the church, and it's awesome. What a privilege. And, you know, every month they send me stuff, and it encourages me. I get hugely encouraged. Sometimes I meet with them. They pray for me. It's hugely encouraging. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit 
is just far and away the best prayer partner. He's the prayer partner of the universe. It's awesome. And he's praying for you right now. I wonder what he's praying. I wonder what he's praying for you right now. I wonder what he's praying for your unsaved kids. I wonder what he's praying for your saved kids. I wonder what he's praying for your marriage. I wonder what he's praying for that difficult situation you're in at work. I wonder what he's praying for your health issue. I'll tell you one thing. Whatever he's praying for you is filled with hope. Because he's infinite and he's sovereign. He's never discouraged or afraid of anything. Did that ever cross your mind? If you're infinite and you're in control of everything and you know how everything's going to turn out because you know the future, could you ever be worried about anything? You couldn't. So you have a prayer partner right now. The prayer partner. He's infinite. He's sovereign. He's in control. And he's praying for you right now. He's praying for the various situations and things going on in your life and in your heart. And whatever he's praying for you is guaranteed to be filled with hope and with power. This should be the greatest motivation anywhere for us to repent of prayerlessness and to begin to go and meet with him in prayer. Because you and I actually have a choice every single day that we can wade into this never-ending river of intercession that is going on between the Holy Spirit who is inside of you and the throne room of God. There is a river of intercession flowing between the Spirit inside of you and the throne room of God, and it never ceases. It is powerful. It is wide. And you and I can choose any day, at any time, to step into that stream and soak ourselves in what the Holy Spirit is praying for us. You want to talk about life-changing? That's life-changing. And I can't imagine what would happen to us if we ever got this picture, this faith in us, this faith that every time I go to prayer, I can join in with the Holy Spirit who's praying the most powerful prayers for me anywhere that could be prayed. If we would get that realization, the privilege of what this is, and it means that even when you're praying the wrong thing, it's okay because the Spirit is praying the right thing. Isn't that awesome? I actually take so much comfort in this. It just, this has come to me in the last couple of years. It's just been changing the way I pray. I used to always worry all the time. Now it's good. It's good to know. I want to step into the stream of his prayers. I don't, want to Lord, I don't want to know, Lord, what should I be praying about this situation? And he can show you. But sometimes the list of prayers just gets like this long, and I actually don't know. I'm not even smart enough. And I look at this request here. I don't even know. I know it needs prayer. Is it prayer A, B, or C? I don't know. Any one of them could sink me if it's the wrong thing. Because I don't know five years from now, ten years from now, you ever get that where you're praying? You don't know what you should pray. You just know it's something big. So then what you do is you start to realize, actually, it doesn't matter what I pray. Because it does matter that I pray. Because James says, you have not because you ask not. If I don't pray, he might just pray Father, don't give him anything until he comes and joins us. And that prayer will get answered. So I'm going to join in with him. I'm going to say, Lord, no idea. Let's go with A. And the Holy Spirit goes, I love that you prayed that. It's completely wrong. You'd hate it five years from now. I'm going to give you C and you're going to be so happy someday. Because <laughs> the Holy Spirit's praying for you and he always prays the right thing. So you can just join with him in prayer knowing that I have asked him something today 
And just like me with Boaz, if he asked me to play dinky cars or, or Eden and Charlie when they asked me to play Uno, and I want to give it to them, he wants to answer your request. The only way you can lose in this situation is to not pray. So let's bow our heads. I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll sing one final song. Holy Spirit, we talk and speak directly to you. You are God, and you are with us. I pray that you would empower us to destroy the strongholds that still reside within us. I pray that you would open up our hearts to your love for us. I pray that you would conform us in our character and our heart to the image of Jesus, and I pray that you would increase our faith as we pray. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.